Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And last week, let's just be honest, last week was just weird. Uh, recorded the podcast last Monday, uh, reviewing the Florida game, kind of hopefully trying to put some words to feelings that were very strong and very frustrated after Georgia's loss in Jacksonville to Florida. And then I uh, listened to Kirby's press conference on Monday at lunch, listened to Kirby's press conference on Tuesday afternoon, and by Tuesday night, the game against Missouri had been canceled, along with the LSU-Alabama game, along with Ohio State's game against Rutgers, uh, Tennessee-Texas A&M, and a few others around the country. And it, it was just hard to get motivated. It was hard to be excited about college football last weekend. Uh, I personally spent the majority of the weekend just completely and totally plugged into the Masters. So if you're not a golf on television fan, which I know a lot of people aren't, um, I feel sorry for you because there really wasn't much going on in the world of sports, especially in college football last weekend. Clemson had an off day. Um, So you had Notre Dame playing, and then you had a couple of uh, interesting matchups, I guess, uh, in, in the Big Ten, but really not much happening last week. So uh, rather than put out a podcast that I was not very excited to record, um, you know, I, I haven't said it in a while, but there are times of the year where the sports calendar really just isn't conducive to talking uh, a lot about sports, and I don't like putting out podcasts that I'm not excited to record because I assume that means you're probably not going to be very excited to hear it. So took the, uh, took the I guess, a good week off, and uh I'm happy to say that we're back today. We're going to be having a lot to talk about and really focusing in on Georgia's game against Mississippi State under the lights in Sanford Stadium this Saturday night. So the one thing I will say is we are going to do the podcast a little bit differently today. Typically, we go with four downs, focusing on the University of Georgia. Then we'll talk about uh, the opponent for the week and kind of get into some of the, the nuts and bolts of the game for that week. And we usually finish up with the viewing guide. But this week, we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to start with the viewing guide. And that's because I really feel like where I want to end today's episode is really talking about Georgia and the importance of this game this weekend. So Thank you again for listening. Let's get going. And here is this week's viewing guide. I've been waiting all year for one of those weekends where you have something that's really good that you want to watch on Thursday night, Friday night, and then leading into the weekend. Unfortunately, we still don't have it. I'm not sure we're going to get it this year. I just don't think there's enough quality games um, throughout the an entire you know weekend. Uh, we don't have those the ACC games. They, they just don't seem to be playing those on Thursday night this year. Uh, I don't know if that's a COVID thing. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But We'll start with the noon games on Saturday. There's three that I got my eye on. Uh, the, one of them is the only top ten matchup that we get this week, and that's number nine Indiana on the road at number three Ohio State. That's the big noon game on Fox. Uh, Indiana, if you have not been paying attention, has just they, – they're undefeated. They're on a roll. They won a very entertaining game against Penn State at the beginning of the year. Since then, they've managed to beat with, uh, Michigan. Uh, who's not very good, but they've they've established themselves as as one of the better teams in the Big Ten, and now they have their biggest test of the year as they go on the road to play Ohio State. Uh, This is the last chance for anybody in the regular season, in my opinion, to really challenge Ohio State. Uh, And at this point, it looks like Wisconsin may be the only team that really could give Ohio State a game in the Big Ten championship game. So uh, this is the last test for the Buckeyes before they get to championship weekend. It'll be interesting to see if Indiana can keep this game close. I think it's a matter of the fact that Indiana could lose by two or three touchdowns and still be a pretty good team. I think Ohio State's just that good, but that's why I've got a couple games for you. So you've got Indiana on the road at Ohio State on Fox. Over on ABC, you've got number four Clemson on the road at Florida State. Now, this is one of those games that when you think about, wow, Clemson-Florida State, man, that should be like a 7.30 game of the week kind of game. Well, it would be, except for the fact that Florida State is trash, and they've been trash for a while now. So what it really is is this is Clemson back after a week off, and what this really, really is is Trevor Lawrence back on the field for Clemson. So after the loss to Notre Dame where Lawrence didn't play the week before, uh, the scare against BC, 
where Lawrence didn't play. It's been a month since we've seen Trevor Lawrence, who is, in my opinion, he won't win the Heisman now because he's missed some time, but he's the best player in college football. He's the obvious number one pick in the upcoming NFL draft uh, if he chooses to come out. Um, and Georgia fans, <laughs> I'll just go ahead and break it, to, break it up a little bit here. I hope he comes out because if he doesn't, Georgia's going to have a huge test to have to try to pass uh, starting the 2021 season when Georgia plays Clemson and Charlotte. Um, but Florida State's just not on Clemson's level. So this is not going to be a close game. I think it's 36 and a half is, is the line on this game. But what's really important is, does, Cle- does Clemson look good? Does Trevor Lawrence come out? Does he kind of bounce right back? Does he come right back into it? Or are there any kind of ill effects from the, the few weeks off that he's had? The other game at noon um, is is equally kind of crazy. LSU on the road at Arkansas. Arkansas, as of yesterday, was a one-point favorite in this game after being 34-point underdogs last year when Arkansas went on the road to play at LSU. So, wow. I mean, that's all I can say is just wow. The idea that Arkansas is favored in this game just shows you how far LSU really has fallen in this one season. There's only one game in the 330 time slot. Um, So, it was supposed to be uh, a Texas A&M game, but it got canceled this weekend. And so there, for the second straight weekend, there is no CBS game in that 3.30 time slot. So you do have uh, over on ABC, number 10 Wisconsin on the road at Northwestern. This is the Big Ten West Championship game, essentially. Um, Wisconsin uh, has already missed two games. The Big Ten said before the year that you had to play at least six games of the original eight-game schedule to be eligible to play for the Big Ten Championship. So Wisconsin has the, you know, win out, I would imagine, just to, to make it to the Big Ten title game, but they cannot have any more cancellations uh, because they've already had two so far this year. Northwestern, pretty good defense. Their offense was just god-awful terrible last year. They're a little bit better this year. So um, the winner of this game most likely will be the team, uh, barring another missed game from Wisconsin, the winner of this game should be the team that plays Ohio State for the Big Ten Championship uh, in mid-December. So, uh, speaking of playing on championship weekend, the 4 o'clock game on the SEC Network, Kentucky, not them, they're not the ones playing on championship weekend, but Kentucky uh, goes on the road to play Alabama, who is now the number one team in the nation. Uh, Alabama, again, uh, an off week, unplanned off week, like so many teams had last week. Uh, not playing the LSU game, still trying to figure out how the SEC is going to move and manipulate some things to try to see if they can get all of the games played uh, at some point this year. But the Tide taking on Kentucky, it'll be interesting. Kentucky does have a, a, a solid defense, as solid as any defense in the SEC. It'll be interesting to see how Alabama's offense coming off an off week Uh, how they look against the Wildcats. There's a few games in the evening to keep an eye on. Tennessee and Auburn. Tennessee on the road at Auburn. Number 23, Auburn. That game's on ESPN. Um, Tennessee, now that South Carolina has made the decision to get rid of Will Muschamp, Tennessee is now the SEC team that everybody's going to be watching. Um, Auburn, after starting the season really high and then kind of hitting some low points uh, in the middle part of the year, the win they had against LSU a couple of weeks ago really, you know, kind of raised some eyebrows, raised my eyebrows, let's put it that way. And now Tennessee comes in there just stumbling, bumbling, and fumbling their way uh, down to the plains. It'll be interesting to see uh, how these two teams play. Neither played last week, so uh, that's going to be interesting. And Auburn has a big game looming next week. Uh, despite all the changes in the schedule, they kept the Iron Bowl on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So, Tennessee this week, next week Alabama uh, is the team that Auburn will have to play. So it'll be interesting to see if Auburn can play well and give themselves at least a puncher's chance going into that Iron Bowl. Again, that game is 7 o'clock on ESPN. Obviously at 7.30, Georgia fans, most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be watching Mississippi Mississippi State, easy for me to say, uh, go on the road here in Athens to take on number 13 Georgia. That game's going to be on the SEC Network. At the same time, uh, Oklahoma State, number 14, goes on the road to play number 18, Oklahoma. So this is Bedlam, and that game is on ABC. Presumably they will get the Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreet, uh, 
crew for that game. Uh, always a fun game to watch. That's one of those games. I mean, even even back when I was a kid in the 90s and neither one of these teams were very good, it just seems like they always played very entertaining games. So uh, you might be able to watch a little bit more of that one than you might assume with a Georgia game going on at the exact same time. We'll get into all of that later, but there may be a, a lot of opportunities to flip the channel uh, during commercials and things like that. And then if you are so inclined, we, f- we have our first edition of Pac-12 After Dark at 10.30 over on ESPN. Number 20 USC goes on the road to play Utah. Um, USC should be 0-2. Somehow they managed to beat both of the Arizona schools um, when they honestly should have lost both of those games. But they're 2-0. and They're ranked number 20. Uh Probably not going to be an opportunity for any of the Pac-12 teams to make the playoff, especially USC. They've looked very, very average so far. But if it's 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, and you're just needing something to do, USC and Utah will be there for you. So top 10 matchup, a lot of good games on the schedule. It'll at least be entertaining, much better this weekend than last weekend. That is with our fingers crossed that after recording this, we don't find out that half of these games, if not more, get canceled because of positive tests but that's this week's viewing guide that'll set us up for the weekend and tell us where to be when to be there and what games to keep an eye on on this beautiful fall weekend the enemy of my enemy my friend or the enemy of my friend my enemy what or the enemy of my enemy my enemy what do you say the enemy of my enemy is my enemy said the enemy of his enemy is his enemy In the spirit of doing this particular episode completely backwards, let's talk now about our enemy for this week, and that is the Bizarro Bulldogs of Mississippi State. Uh, they come into this game 2-4 and four on the year. Uh, they won their first game of the season, and they won the last game they played. Of course, they famously beat LSU in the first game of the year, 44-34, in Baton Rouge. Went into Death Valley in the first game under Mike Leach, put up 44 points on the defending national champion and beat LSU to start their season in a tailspin. Um, Then they rolled off four straight very unimpressive losses uh, and only picked up their second win of the season uh, on November 7th, two weeks ago when uh, they beat Vanderbilt in Starkville. So when you think about Mississippi State, I I can't imagine – trying to convince myself the week after that LSU win for Mississippi State. I I can't imagine if I could go back and whisper in my own ear and say, hey, the next game this team wins will be against Vanderbilt in the beginning of November. It just didn't seem like it. There there was legitimate, not just me, I'm talking about legitimate college football experts who were openly asking the question if Mike Leach and the Air Raid were going to revolutionize the SEC. And as much as that obviously seems ridiculous now, you have to make yourself go back and think about that. It was shocking, that opening weekend. It was so shocking to see what Mississippi State had done. We didn't know that LSU's defense was garbage at that point. The last thing we remember from an LSU team, and, you know, we knew they lost a lot. But, I mean, the last thing you had was them winning the national championship. And now all of a sudden they're losing at home to Mississippi State. And there was the pirate – Twitter account going crazy for Mike Leach that next week. I mean, they were the toast of college football. And that lasted all of a week. And then the wheels came off. And what you have in Mississippi State is you have a team and a coach who has gone in a single, you know, basically in the span of like two, two and a half months. It's been the best of times, and now it's it's kind of the worst of times because Mike Leach has had multiple players, including Kylan Hill, who was the starting running back. And if you remember, I'm not going to get political here, but if you remember, this was the running back who said, I'm not playing if the state of Mississippi doesn't change their flag. Now, we had an election a couple of weeks ago, and while some things about that election uh, might be still up for debate about who won, one thing that is not up for debate is the state of Mississippi has a new state flag after the election uh, a couple of weeks ago. And A big reason for that is Kylan Hill. So this guy was not only an important player on this team, he's just an important symbol in what's going on in the state of Mississippi over the last six to nine months. Uh, He's not on the team anymore. He left, um, along with a a lot of other 
high-profile guys who just basically got completely and totally tired of Mike Leach. And, I mean, Mike Leach's first game as head coach of Mississippi State was on September 29th, That's or September 26th, excuse me. That's when they beat LSU. It's currently, like, November 19th, and the wheels have completely come off. And so there are people who are openly asking – whether or not Michael Leach will actually be back for a second season next year. Now, I think he will only because you, you can't keep changing coaches the way that some people change underwear and expect the program to get any better. But what you have in Mississippi State is a team that they have something that they do very, very well, but it seems like the only person that was unable to figure out how to stop it was Bo Pelini, the LSU defensive coordinator, the future former defensive coordinator for LSU, because as as soon as maybe even this weekend, uh, Bo Pelini's going to get fired. I would be surprised, and I don't really know how buyouts work in the SEC, but there seems to be no, no more a logical hire at this point than LSU and Ed Orgeron firing Bo Pelini and bringing in Will Muschamp to be the defensive coordinator. That just feels too perfect for me. So I think that will absolutely happen. The only thing that could stop it is if uh, Will Muschamp's buyout, that $13 million that South Carolina owes him, uh, doesn't get paid if he takes another job like in the conference or something. Because if I were Will Muschamp, uh, I would make – South Carolina pay me every single dime of that contract. He can go be on the SEC network or, you know, I think if, if Georgia has the option, I'd love to see him come in and be like one of uh, Saban's, def- you know, obviously not Saban, but be, be, you know, one of these defensive analysts or something like that uh, for the next year or two while South Carolina's paying him a lot. We could pay him a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. South Carolina's paying him $13 million for the next two years. So uh, let South Carolina pay his salary and let him – at least a couple times, game plan against the Gamecocks while Georgia beats the holy crap out of them. I think that would just be fun. Um, but when we start thinking about Mississippi State, you think about the air raid, and it's all about the offense when it comes to Mike Leach. And we're going to really get into a lot more of this as we talk about Georgia later in the podcast today. But one thing you need to understand is that there are multiple things going into the decision that players like Kylan Hill made. Now, Kylan Hill is a running back. Very good running back, NFL prospect, and one of the reasons that he left, not the main reason, the main reason was personality differences with the coach, but one of the reasons that he left was that Mike Leach, despite what he may say, all of the evidence points directly to the fact that he hates running the football. This year, Mississippi State has run the football 100 times combined over six games. Just to give you a comparison, Zamir White, The starting running back for the University of Georgia has 97 carries on the season. One running back for the University of Georgia, 97 carries. Every single player rushing the ball for Mississippi State, 100 carries. So that should give you a pretty good idea of what we are going to see from Mississippi State this weekend. What we don't know about what we're going to see from them is whether they're going to have their starting quarterback or not. K.J. Costello the starting quarterback that played so well in that opening game against Mississippi, or against LSU. Um, he was out the last couple of weeks with an injury. There hasn't been any indication of whether or not he will be the starting quarterback this Saturday night in Athens. But on the year, Costello is 134 for 207. That's about 65% completion percentage, uh, around 1,300 yards. Here's the interesting thing. Six touchdowns, 10 interceptions, and he's been sacked 14 times. Uh, If it's not Costello, if he is still injured, we're going to see Will Rogers, who is 83 for 116, so that's a higher percentage. Instead of 65% for Costello, that's about 72% completion percentage for Will Rogers. 536 yards, two touchdowns, four interceptions, five sacks. So just looking at the statistics for the two quarterbacks for uh, Mississippi State, you see both of them have more interceptions than touchdowns, and they both have a significant number of sacks compared to the the number of times they've thrown the ball. 14 sacks for uh, Costello, 5 sacks for Will Rogers, 19 sacks on the season. That's a lot. So you can tell that there's some offensive line issues, or at least that's what you may think. Now, for the season, the quarterbacks for Mississippi State have thrown 324 passes. That's an average of about 57 per game. So, This game is going to take a long time. 
So please drink something caffeinated around 7 o'clock if you want to stay up and watch the end of this game. It starts at 7.30. My guess is it's going to end about 11.45 or 12 o'clock. They are going to throw the ball probably more than 60 times in this game, which stops the clock, which just makes the game. It's going to be the opposite of the Georgia and Kentucky game. Georgia and Kentucky, both teams just were very content playing uh, run, 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 run. And if it's third and 47, and we're going to run it again. Um, that game took about three hours to play. This one's going to take probably four, four and a half hours at least because Mississippi State throws the ball on every single down. When you kind of start digging into this team, if you, you know, I would talk to you about the running backs, but uh, the old saying goes that if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? If a running back doesn't get to run the ball, do we talk about them? And the answer is no. We're going to keep moving. Uh, wide receivers, I'm not going to dig in here, okay? But I will tell you that there are five different receivers on Mississippi State's team that has more than 20 receptions. The leader for receptions on the team is actually their starting running back now that Kylan Hill is gone. Uh, Jaquavius Marks is their leading uh, receiver this year. 38 receptions, but only only 161 yards. That's an average of 4.2 yards per catch. So uh, for the year, Mississippi State is averaging 8 yards per reception. Just to compare that to something else, we'll pick Georgia. Georgia and the feeble passing game that the Dogs have had so far this year, averaging 13 yards per catch compared to 8 yards per catch for Mississippi State. So what I want to do is kind of just explain a little bit about what the air raid is. And the air raid is we put five receivers, four or five receivers, on the field, and we throw it on every single down. And the hope is that you will be able to throw enough receivers out there that somebody is open. It's not so much a vertical passing game. I mean, obviously, anybody is going to throw a long touchdown pass if they have the option. But it's a lot more about essentially having those four-yard, six-yard passes, dinking and dunking, and just passing your way down the field. And so the short passing game is the substitute for the traditional running game. Uh, The problem is that the athletes that SEC defenses feature have been able to make the Mississippi State team throw underneath time and time again and essentially have been able, we talked about the 19 sacks, you have a lot of those, and most of those actually are coverage sacks. So that is where, you know, the opposing defense isn't blitzing to get those sacks. It's just how long can the offensive lineman hold up without, you know, allowing a defensive lineman or a linebacker or whoever's coming to get by and to get to the quarterback. So uh, as much as we thought the air raid was going to revolutionize the SEC uh, and especially defenses in the SEC, Uh, We're going to have to adapt to it. Unfortunately for Mike Leach and Mississippi State, they adapted fairly quickly. And even uh, the Vanderbilt game, excuse me, it was 24 to 17. They only scored 24 points against uh, Vanderbilt. They only beat them by seven. And Vanderbilt's winless and most obviously the worst team in the SEC this year. So it's not just a problem that the vertical passing game is not there. It's not just a problem that they're unwilling to run the ball. The big problem is it's just not working. Uh, it worked that first week, but most people at this point look at it and say the reason it worked was because Bo Pelini was bullheaded, did not adapt his uh, defense to play the offense that he was playing that week, uh, and then throughout the game stuck with his original game plan, although it was not working at any point. So every other defense, Vanderbilt included, has adapted and played in a way that makes it hard for this Mike Leach offense to function. And the blueprint for beating a Mike Leach offense is the Washington Huskies. That you know, Mike Leach was at Washington State before he was at uh, Mississippi State, and every year Mike Leach lost to Washington because Washington had the athletes on defense to be able to use their formula to beat Mike Leach and beat Washington State. So it will be interesting as we kind of start now pivoting the podcast towards the dogs. It'll be interesting to see how Kirby Smart handles uh, the defensive side of the ball, he and Dan Lanning, what kind of plan they come into this game with. They've had some extra time. With the game getting canceled last week, um, Kirby said that they started working on Mississippi State last Thursday. So it will be interesting to see how this team looks with the extra time off. 
and against a defense or against an offense uh, that has not really shown themselves to be effective in the SEC over the course of this season. Let's go four downs with the dogs now, and let's start on first down. Coming into this game, I've had a little bit more time, obviously. You know, you come over the emotion of the Florida loss and the frustration that we were all feeling, uh, the frustration I was feeling during the game, but even by Monday when I've cooled off a little bit, uh, still very, very frustrated. So, obviously, a lot more time now to cool off. I think the team probably would have been very, very happy to get back on the field rather than having to have an extra week to kind of simmer on that Florida loss. But where we come to now is a very interesting place, not only in this season, but I I honestly believe for the program. So I'm going to say two things, and they're going to sound contradictory, but I don't think they are at all. The reality of this game on Saturday night against Mississippi State, it is the least consequential game for the Georgia Bulldogs since Kirby's first season in 2016. It doesn't matter. It really, really doesn't. With the SEC title game really as you know a pipe dream at this point. I mean, the way Florida's been playing, Florida has to lose twice. You know, at one point, I kind of thought that Florida, you know, if Georgia lost to Florida, they'd still have a chance to make the title game because Tennessee was looking, you know, functional early in the season, and I thought LSU would at some point come around. That doesn't seem like it's going to happen now. So the fact that they have to play LSU and they have to play um, Tennessee late in the year, I I don't see them losing either one of those games, let alone both of them. So with the SEC East buttoned up at this point, you, it's kind of hard to understand you know what to play for. Now, obviously, the reason you play is you only get so many games a year, and you want to win. You know, eight and two is not a bad season. It's disappointing season, but it's not a bad season. Um, I think the hard part is, though, that just in reality, because of the fact that every team is eligible for bowls this year, um, so Georgia's going to play in a bowl game. This is 100% true. No matter what happens over the next four or five weeks, Georgia's going to play in a bowl game. Now, if they win out, they'll probably play in like the Peach or the Orange Bowl. That's great. Those are New Year's Six Bowls. There's a lot of there's money in that for the school. Um, there's notoriety, obviously, in being in one of the top tier bowls. If they lose again, they're probably going to end up playing in like the Gator Bowl or the Outback Bowl or something like that. The reality for me is that I think the big thing the college football playoff has done is has it, it has completely and totally made the bowls not important. Even the New Year's Six Bowls, if it's not a playoff game, it doesn't matter at all. You know, and that wasn't the case 20, 25 years ago. When you think back to the Sugar Bowl and how big of a deal the Sugar Bowl felt in 2002 when Georgia played in it for the first time since 1982. The Sugar Bowl, just being in the Sugar Bowl, oh my gosh, man, that that's big time. Well, now we play in the Sugar Bowl and... It doesn't even seem to matter. We played in back-to-back Sugar Bowls. You don't hear anybody saying, you know, Georgia's been to two straight Sugar Bowls as if that's something. And it's because at this point it's playoff or it doesn't matter. Now, I say that, but I, I do think there is still a function and a role. The, the, the bowl games are entertaining. They just don't mean anything. So, for me, Georgia's bowl game is all about the opponent. If no matter where you play, no matter what the venue is, if Georgia ends up playing a good team in a bowl and they're able to win, then that, I think, is a good jumping-off point for the next year. By the same token, if Georgia plays in the Peach Bowl, but they play Cincinnati and they beat Cincinnati by three touchdowns, nobody's going to care that Georgia beats Cincinnati. What people are going to look at it and say, well, it was a good call not putting Cincinnati in the playoff because obviously they weren't nearly that good and when they played a decent team like Georgia, they lost. So... I would much rather, as a Georgia fan, play a team like Wisconsin in or Oregon. I know that won't happen, but like a Wisconsin or an Oregon. Um, trying to think of another or a Miami. That would be fun. Play a team like that in an Outback Bowl, then play, you know, Cincinnati or you know even like Oklahoma or Oklahoma State in a Peach Bowl. So. Uh, the 
Georgia will be playing in a bowl game, and Georgia will not be making the college football playoff, which to bring it back to this week means that as much as no Georgia fan wants to see Georgia lose, and I don't think they're going to lose on Saturday night, it doesn't matter if they do. I mean, it matters from a pride standpoint, but it doesn't matter for this season because there's really the only thing that Georgia fans cared about doing this year is off the table completely. So it's it's just an inconsequential game, just like they all are going to be from here on out. Now, at the same time, I think this is probably the most important game that Georgia is going to play since the 2018 SEC title game. And, and kind of let me talk a little bit about that. Last year was all about getting back to the SEC title game. That was it. They've been two years in a row, won one, lost one. It was about trying to figure out, okay, can Georgia finally take the next step? So all of the games during the year were only to get you back to that point that you had already been to. But then by the time Georgia got to that 2019 SEC title game, no fault, and I I know this is going to sound a little backwards, it's not really Georgia's fault that they had no shot in that game. It's LSU's fault. But Georgia had no shot in that game last year. I mean, as much as I tried to talk myself into it, I don't know if you remember, but if you listen to the podcast frequently, I, I had two different segments. I had the optimistic segment where I tried to tell you why I thought something miraculous could happen. And I followed that up with the, okay, but this is really what's going to happen. Because Georgia was just outclassed, period. LSU was one of the greatest teams in college football history uh, in 2019, and Georgia was just a good team, period. So there was no chance in the world Georgia was going to win. So even going into that game, no. If you, if you gave Kirby Smart the truth serum, hey, do you think your team can win this game? He would have probably had to say, no, nah, probably not. I mean, anybody could, right, on any given day. Anything could happen. But do you feel like it's going to happen? No, probably not. So the reason this is the most important game since that 2018 title game, or SEC championship game, is because there are a lot of questions surrounding the program right now. There's questions about the offense, you know. Is Todd Munkin the right fit? Is Kirby Smart in Todd Munkin's way? Can Kirby Smart pick a quarterback? There's questions about the defense. We've played two good offenses this year, and they have beat the holy crap out of us. What's going on with Georgia's defense? Why is Georgia's defense this bad? Is Georgia's defense this bad? There's questions about the future of the program. There are people that are openly asking have we seen the best days under Kirby Smart? There's people who are burned by the fact that Mark Rick started great, and it, it never really got better than that 2002 to 2005 time. There were sparks. Well, you know, you had 2012 in there. You had 2007 in there. But the program never got back to that level. And so if, for Georgia fans who are negative, I mean, we grew up listening to Munson. You know, we're a negative group of people. We constantly are worried that everything's downhill from here. So there's a lot of questions surrounding the program. And I believe that as much as success, and we'll talk about this in a moment, success on Saturday night could be one of those roll-eye moments for the Georgia fan base. A lack of success on Saturday night is just going to fuel the fire of these questions over the, the rest of this year and then all off-season long heading into next year. Georgia needs some of these questions answered on Saturday night. Now, we're going to dig into this a lot more specifically, but we have to be able to accept that both of these things that are complete contradictions are true. If Georgia wins on Saturday night, it really doesn't mean that much. But Georgia really needs to win on Saturday night. And they need to win looking good. So it's the most it's the least consequential game in a long time. It's the most important game in a long time. Winning only calms every da- everybody down for one week. But losing or winning ugly will just be like setting off a Thanksgiving Day turd for the fro- for the program. So it's a very interesting week. Let's really dive into the offensive side of this and the defensive side of this in second and third down. All right, second down is here. It's the time that all of you have been waiting for. There have been so many people clamoring 
since the first game of the year for what we are going to see, it seems like, on Saturday night. Our long-awaited debut for the first time ever on the field at Sanford Stadium, JT Daniels is going to be your starting quarterback. All signs are pointing in practice. Daniels has been taking the first team reps, according to reports. Of course, practice is closed, but there's multiple people uh, that have been talking to uh, reporters and kind of leaking things out. Kirby Smart's kind of just general comments about JT have been different uh, over the last week and a half. I think he would have been the starter uh, at Missouri last week, and I fully expect him to be the starter this week against Mississippi State. So here's the thing. If I were going to put a title on second down, it would be JT Daniel, Savior, or just another guy. And I don't know if there's any in between here. Um, the funniest part of this for me is, and I, and I talked about it a couple weeks ago on the podcast, as much as everybody has been talking about JT Daniels, and when I say everybody, I'm talking about social media, I'm talking about the message boards, I'm talking about radio, print, the television commentators, everybody wants to talk about JT Daniels. But I'm telling you right now, if I set you in a room with JT Daniels, if you were at your doctor's office and JT Daniels was sitting across from you, I promise you, you would not even know who he was. And that's the irony of all this, is that this is the most anticipated debut for somebody that no one knows anybody about. No, no one knows anything about, excuse me. Nobody knows anything about JT Daniels. Nobody, I, I, I almost guarantee you, that nobody has watched this man play a full game. Not at one Georgia fan. Because you would have had to watch USC from 2018, and they sucked. And I can't think in my life, I can't think of why anybody would have watched any of those games. Have you seen the highlights? Uh-huh. Have you gone on and said, wow, look how far he threw it on that play? Sure. But it's not the same as watching him for a whole game. It's not the same as understanding the way he, he is as a game manager, is how he handles the team, how he commands the huddle. Does he make, does he throw the ball away when nothing's there? Or does he try to force things? You don't know. You just know that his name's not Stetson Bennett and you know, his name's not Dwan Mathis. And you just assume that that means he's great because God almighty, those two other guys aren't right. So let's start talking about JT Daniels by starting to talk about, you know, who JT Daniels is. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you just the basic stuff. He's a 6'3 sophomore, 210 pounds out of Irvine, California. Now, if you're listening to the podcast and you're, if you were one of the people that were in my house a couple of weeks ago, he's 6'3. Hey, he's not short. You know what that means? He'll never have a ball batted down because we understand. We know. Georgia fans understand. If you're short, the ball gets batted down. Tall quarterbacks or just average-sized quarterbacks never have balls batted down. So just remember that as you're watching the games over the next few weeks and Daniels is the quarterback. There should be zero balls batted down. Zero. And if there's any batted down, then it's obvious they're lying about how tall he is because only short quarterbacks have the ball batted down. Um. He's from California. He was a five-star recruit. He went to USC, and he started as a freshman. Uh, that season, 20, or excuse me, 216 for 363. That's around 60% completion. Threw for about 2,700 yards, 14 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. He came into the 2019 season as the starting quarterback for USC. He tore his ACL in their opening game against Fresno State, and he transferred back in the spring of 2020 to come to Georgia uh, after it was obvious that he was not going to be the starting quarterback for USC moving forward. If you've watched USC play, um, it makes you nervous. At least it makes me nervous. I've watched a little bit of both of their games so far this year. Their quarterback, Slovis, is fine, but he's not great. And a coach in Clay Helton, who is coaching every single week for his job at USC, chose Slovis over giving JT Daniels an opportunity to come back and be the starting quarterback. Now, Clay Helton, probably not going to be the USC coach for much longer, so it's not like this is Newt Rockney that's picked this guy. But at the same time, you'd think a coach that wants to win right now like Clay Helton needs to win right now to keep his job, would be picking the guy that he feels like could give him the best chance to win right now. And he chose Slovis. So let's let's understand who JT Daniels is. He's a guy that started as a freshman in the Pac-12, played fine, got hurt, and never got another opportunity. So that's who we got. That's That's our guy. That's our hopes and dreams. He's going to be the savior. The best game 
that JT Daniels had from a passing yard standpoint. Uh, was against no, uh, Notre Dame. It was the last game of 2018. He was 37 of 51 for 349 yards and a touchdown. That's pretty solid. 349. I, I mean, you could probably take two Stetson Bennett games, put them together, and I'm not sure we got 349 uh, passing yards. Uh, maybe the most impressive stat line he had was against Washington State that year, where he was 17 of 26 for 241, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Now, if you're putting some things together here, Washington State that year was absolutely coached by Mike Leach, who was the Mississippi State coach that Daniels will face on Saturday night. So JT Daniels, like I said, if he's sitting in your doctor's office, I promise you that you wouldn't know that it's him, but he's going to be your starting quarterback. He's number 18, just so you know who you're looking at on the field. Now, here's the deal. I don't know what he's going to be. And I think my frustration early in this segment maybe sounds like I'm kind of not really a believer. It's not that. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm a Georgia fan. I'm rooting for JT Daniels to, to be the best quarterback we've ever had, period. Just in the same way that I was rooting for Dwan Mathis to be the second coming of Justin Fields, except he doesn't leave. In the same way that I was hoping that Stetson Bennett could be the next Aaron Murray, right? I mean, I'm a Georgia fan. I want to win. I don't care who plays. I just want to win. I want us to win every game we play. I want us to win every game we play by four touchdowns so I can just enjoy it. But my frustration with JT Daniels is actually not with him. It's with the fan base. It's with the fan base that's decided a guy they've never seen and they don't know anything past his name, his height, his weight, and his number is the best quarterback on Georgia's roster. It's with the fan base that then gets pissed off and says that maybe we don't have the right coach because he doesn't know the thing that we know. Being at practice every day, he sees this guy play every day, and he's seen him work out. He knows everything about him. We wouldn't know the guy if he's sitting in our doctor's office, but we know. The one thing we know is that he was a five-star, and he can throw the ball because we've seen a highlight or two. Kirby Smart doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe we need a new coach. That's where my frustration comes from, is that I'm just really sick of Georgia fans more this year than I've ever been before. And 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 the friends that I have that aren't Georgia fans that have told me for years, man, Georgia fans suck. They are 100% right. Because it is completely and totally ignorant for any Georgia fan to expect this kid to come in and just tear it up from world go. Okay? He has not played a game since September of 2019. He is coming off an ACL injury in that game, and he had to have a follow-up surgery at some point in the last eight or nine months to clean up the fact that the injury wasn't completely healed with the initial surgery. He's been running with the scout team up until Stetson Bennett got hurt in the Florida game two weeks ago. So could he be really good? Sure. Let's hope so, right? But... Should we expect him to put up Kyle Trask and Mike Mac Jones-like numbers Saturday night? No. Why would we? Why would we? And, and, and the worst part of all of this is that the people who have been clamoring for JT Daniels to start, if he struggles at all, they're going to forget the fact that they're, this is the guy they wanted to see. And they are just going to start crapping all over Kirby Smart. Now, I'm not going to give any more time to that. But just just trust me when I tell you that I can make a very, very good argument why that is the stupidest thing anybody could ever think. But that's exactly what will happen. Now, if we can't expect him to come out and throw 15 touchdowns, no interceptions, and throw for about 7,000 yards on Saturday night, what should we expect? So all I did was I have created par. In, in the spirit of coming off of Masters Week, I've created par for JT Daniels on Saturday night. And the way I created par is I took all of the numbers quarterbacks have put up against Mississippi State this year and averaged them all out. And if he's better than these numbers that I'm about to tell you, I think we should be excited and happy. And if he's worse, then I think we should be a little bit concerned. I don't know that there's really a whole lot of strong logic in this, but this is how I've decided this should be what Georgia fans hopefully can expect. Somewhere in the neighborhood of about 60, 62% passing percentage, completion percentage, excuse me, about 230 yards, a couple of touchdowns and an interception. That's par. Two touchdowns and interception, 230 yards, 60%. 
That is what in baseball is called a quality start. You go out there, six innings, three earned runs. It was good enough that let your team win. If JT Daniels does that on Saturday night, Georgia's going to win. They're going to win comfortably. Now, he comes out and throws for 65%, 350 yards, three touchdowns and a pick. He's done better than par. He's, he's doing great. If he comes out and throws for 50%, 170, one touchdown and one pick, I'd say you can be a little bit disappointed because it's below average what quarterbacks have been able to do against Mississippi State this year. But I'm just hoping for the few people that listen to this podcast that we can establish some rational expectations going into this game because this is, now I understand where we are in our our season, okay? I get it. We've lost to Florida. The season's over. Nothing else matters. Uh, It's trash. I'm not even going to watch the game. Well, I might put it on there for a few minutes, but I don't care, except that I do care, but whatever. What this is is this is the first piece of data we have on this kid. Okay, this is where he's starting. The assumption is that he will get better. So wherever he starts is a starting point. And what we need for the rest of this year is for him to play well this week, play better the following week, and better the following two weeks, have three weeks, or you know, probably not three whole weeks now with the schedule, a couple of weeks to get ready for the bowl game, play well in the bowl game, have a good spring practice, have a good summer workout, be healthy going into fall camp and come out and be our starting quarterback next year. That's what we need from JT Daniels. Now, I don't know. I've seen his picture. So if he's in my doctor's office, I'll recognize him. I don't know if he's capable of that. We're going to start finding out on Saturday night, but here's the deal, Georgia fans. We want him to do well. So if he does well, I'm going to ask you, please, if he plays well on Saturday night, Let's just be happy about that. Let's don't go back in time and get pissed off and ask, why did he not play against Alabama and why did he not play against Florida? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do know that there's a person that lives in this same town that I live in that gets paid $7 million a year to make that decision. And that person is more maniacally focused on Georgia winning than any other person myself included, and anybody that listens to this podcast and anybody that you know that's the biggest Georgia fan, they don't want to win as bad as Kirby Smart. So whether or not it was the right decision, the person with the most information and the most to win and lose from making the decision chose to not start him until this point. Now, of course, Kirby could be wrong, but I don't think it's fair to consistently just look at people and judge them off of what we think might have been good or might have been bad. Everybody can look back a couple years and say, man, in hindsight, Justin Fields should have been starting for Georgia. Not a whole lot of people would have made that decision at the time, period. No matter what you say now, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. So hindsight's always easier. What I am saying right now is Georgia's starting quarterback on Saturday night is J.C. Daniels, and we should all be rooting for him. And there shouldn't be a but in that. We should all be rooting for him. If he does well, great. If he doesn't do well, we got some questions to ask. But the question is not, Kirby, what's wrong with you? The question is, who's going to play quarterback for this team? Because we have a lot of those pieces. Just today, just today, as I'm recording on Wednesday, Wednesday morning we got the number one recruit in the state of Georgia, a five-star outside linebacker, the number 11 player in the entire country commits to the University of Georgia. And that's great. But that's par, guys. We get the best players. We get great recruits. We need a quarterback. We need an offense. We need to be able to go out there and beat somebody 44-41 if that's what it takes to beat an Alabama or a Florida. That's just the reality of where we are. So hopefully what we see is the start of something on Saturday night. But if it's not perfect, please, I'm begging you. Just be a little bit patient. Because at least this guy's not short, right? Third down is the the, the other question, the other big question fa- facing this team right now, which is, what the heck happened to the defense? What the heck has happened to the defense? 
if ever there was a get-right game, this is it, right? Mississippi State is averaging only about 15 points per game. But when you take out that 44-point performance they had against LSU's just terrible defensive scheme against them in the first week of the year, they're averaging less than 10 points per game. So this is a get-right week for the defense because I don't know the question of what happened against Alabama in the second half, well, first half too, but I don't know the question, the answer to the question of what happened to the defense in those two big games this year that Georgia's already lost. I do know that there's not an offense left on our schedule that should be able to push us that way. But it begs the question, will Kirby do what is necessary to beat Mississippi State? And if the beginning or the earlier part of the podcast when I was talking about Mississippi State's offense, if it sounded like I was holding something back, I was, and that's because I wanted to talk about it in this context. I shared on the last podcast with you my frustration at what I feel was Kirby's unwillingness to change his base defense based on what Florida continuously did against Georgia and Jacksonville. They kept finding matchups where they could get people get running backs and tight ends matched up with our linebackers and they just killed us with that time and time again and Kirby didn't adjust and I told you that in the post or sorry not the post game press conference but in his Monday press conference following the Florida game he said that it was about eye control the scheme was right and all this stuff and that scares the daylights out of me that scares the daylights out of me and this week to me is the perfect week to see if Kirby will do what other people have done, change his scheme for a week, and adjust to what Mississippi State does. Because here, there's a very, very clear formula to beating Mississippi State. You rush three, you drop eight, and you win the game. The only team that's not Vanderbilt (laughs) that failed to do this this year was LSU. LSU stayed in their base defense. They played the 4-3 that Bo Pelini just believes in that that lost him the job at Nebraska. They just stayed in that defense. They kept trying to play man-to-man, and they got torched. And if Georgia gets torched, there's only one person to blame, and it's Kirby Smart. Because I could game plan this defense based on just listening to podcasts and, and, and hearing people talk about how easy this offense has been to stop and how Mike Leach has been unwilling to do anything different to adjust to this adjustment. He never was able to adjust when Washington did it in the Pac-12, and he hasn't been able to adjust in the SEC once somebody else changed out of their base defense. This His version of the air raid seems to only work if you're stupid defensively. If you just rush three, Drop eight, you win. Now, we talked earlier about all the sacks, and I talked about them being coverage sacks. Quarterback pressure is not important. So what you are going to see in this game, and I need you to be ready, Georgia fans. I need you to be ready for what you're going to see. Hopefully, this is what success looks like on Saturday night. Mississippi State's in the shotgun. They've got about 1,000 receivers on the field. Georgia's got their three-down linemen in there. The ball is snapped. The quarterback drops back, and he has all day to throw, and he ends up dumping it off to the running back for a three-yard gain. That is success. We're going to see that over and over and over if Kirby adjusts the way he should. What you're also going to see is you're going to see, ultimately, a, a few holding penalties on Mississippi State because Costello or whoever the quarterback is is going to be back there trying to find an open guy, and as the defensive lineman for Georgia are able to try to get off their blocks a little bit, the offensive linemen are going to hold a little bit. That's going to push Mississippi State back. That's going to put them in a bad down and distance, and that three-yard dump-off isn't going to matter when it's third and 15. That's the formula for beating Mississippi State. I am not an X's and O's aficionado. I don't understand all of this. This is not my game plan. This is what I have heard from everybody. Everybody that talks about Mississippi State talks about how it has become blatantly obvious how you beat them, and this is how to do it. Now, every once in a while, if you want to bring a linebacker on a blitz, that's fine. Every once in a while, just to kind of keep them honest. But you don't have to because they're not going to run the ball. 
They just, they're not. Michael Leach is going to be stubborn. He's going to try to do what he wants to do. And if you adjust to it, he hasn't shown that he has another club in his bag. Mississippi State is probably going to throw more than 60 passes on Saturday night. And most of them are going to be dump-off short little passes. And that is success. And that is wins. Because they can't march down the field. They're not going to have a 14-play, 75-yard drive where they pick up four or five first downs in the process, dumping it off every time. They're just not going to. So the defensive backs need to be disciplined. They need to keep themselves behind the players for Mississippi State, keep the Mississippi State receivers in front of them, and then just knock balls down, bat balls down, hopefully pick off a couple. A lot of interceptions for these guys, and that's because they get impatient and they try to force something, and then you're able to get some tip balls, and you got so many guys in the in the secondary, tip balls end up being t- intercepted. The other piece was the sacks. You don't have to rush more than three to pick up sacks on these guys because Offensive linemen can't block forever. So the normal thing we need to see is six defensive backs on the field, three down linemen, and two linebackers. You need to find the two linebackers that can cover the best, and those are the two linebackers that need to be playing because they're the ones that are going to be matched up on the tight end and, and on the running back. That's the formula, guys. It's not that hard. The defense for Mississippi State, they're not terrible. They're averaging giving up about 28 points per game. Georgia would have been pretty happy to score 28 most of this season, right? So you're going to have to hold their offense down a little bit. And I fully expect Georgia to come out and and do this. I will be very disappointed and shocked if they don't just take their medicine, do what everybody else has done. I mean, if you watch tape, you cannot miss the fact that Bo Pelini played one way and lost. Everybody else has played a different way and won, except Vanderbilt, who played the different way and almost won. So this is the simplest test Kirby has ever faced when it comes to scheme and game plan. Will he just be willing to do what's working, or will he be hard-headed and do what he thinks is the best thing to do no matter what? And if he does that, then for the first time, if he comes out and he plays base defense and lets Mike Leach offense throw all over him and Georgia ends up losing this game, then next Monday you're going to hear me say for the first time that I think maybe there should be a court of, or, uh, uh, some serious discussions about a new coach because this is not a hard choice. This is very, very simple, and Kirby's got to get it right. The defense has got to get it right. They've got to get some of that swagger back. This season is all about building towards the future now, and you've got to get that identity back on defense. And a defensive identity is not about a scheme. It's not about 3-4 versus 4-3. It's not about being linebacker you or defensive line you or defensive back you. Defensive identity is about not giving up points, period. It doesn't matter if you give up some yards. It doesn't matter if the other teams can run on you a little bit or pass on you. Just don't let them score. And in this game, this team in Mississippi State has struggled to score. With as many five-star athletes as Georgia has on defense, there's absolutely no reason, no reason, that Georgia shouldn't hold them to around 10 to 14 points in this game, period. Now, if the Georgia offense is garbage and we lose 14 to 6, that's not Kirby's fault. But if Georgia can't hold this very average to below average Mississippi State offense, if they can't hold them down like everybody else has been able to do, it says a whole lot more about Kirby than it does about Mike Leach in this offense. For fourth down, basically, we're just going to talk about the guys that are coming back. You know, uh, press conference the other day, Kirby talked about the fact that everybody was getting healthy. Uh, George Pickens would have been able to play last week had uh, Georgia played against Missouri, so he should be back and be ready. We talked about in the post-Florida podcast that losing your number one receiver matters. It does, no matter what anybody else will say, no matter the fact that Alabama can lose a receiver. You know, we saw how different Florida's offense looked once Pitts was out of the game. And for Georgia, not having George Pickens matters. Now, hopefully what we're going to see is, you know, if, if there's one thing that I hope we see out of JT Daniels, it's better accuracy. You know, a lot of people have pointed out the fact that, you know, both Bennett and DeWan miss wide open guys way down the field. They did. 
they also missed wide open guys like 10 to 15 yards down the field. If, if accuracy is something that JT Daniels is good at, decision-making, hopefully that's where he makes his mistakes, right? It's because you, you can, with experience and time, you can teach somebody how to make better decisions. Accuracy is probably one of the hardest things to teach because it's all about footwork. It's all about, you know, kind of form and, and arm angle and all of these kind of things. And those things, for a quarterback at this level, there's a lot of ingrained things in you. And if you've got bad footwork, it's probably going to be hard to fix that. So I hope we see an accurate quarterback in JT Daniels, and I hope where he's what he's doing, he's throwing to these receivers that have, unlike last year, these guys have been open. Kiaris Jackson's been open. George Pickens has been open. Trey Burton's been open. You know, um, Darnell Washington's been open. Now, they haven't always caught the ball. That's a completely different thing. But hopefully what we see out of this offense is an ability to at least take advantage of the passes that are there. And I think that's what we will see. The other piece, the other guys that are back, you know, obviously Kenny McIntosh hurt or banged up uh, in the Alabama game, didn't play uh, much in the second half. He looked like one of Georgia's most dynamic offensive threats. I mean, kick returns uh, for sure, but then you also have to look at the fact that he was very, very good um, just running the ball out of the backfield. I think he's probably the best running back on this team, and I think he'll be the number one guy next year. I uh, don't know what Zamir White's going to do, uh, but if, if I were Zamir White, I think I'd go ahead and not take any more hits at the SEC level. I think I'd go pro. Not because he's going to be a first-round pick. He's not. He's probably going to be like a fourth or a fifth-round pick. But go ahead and get paid, get on a team, and, you know, have a two- or three-year contract and then then make some money after that. I don't think him coming back to Georgia next year is going to improve his draft status. He's already torn two ACLs. He probably needs to go get paid. And if that's the case, Kenny McIntosh is going to be your number one running back next year. The other guy who's back is Lewis Seen. Now, Seen was thrown out uh, at the end of the first half against Florida. He would have, he didn't, he wouldn't have missed any time against Missouri. Uh, he obviously missed the second half of the Florida game. But Seen also was in concussion protocol. He's cleared of all that now. So, the the depth issues that Georgia had uh, in the secondary are going to be a little bit better now that Lewis Seen will be starting at safety for the Dogs. And the biggest return from injury this year or this week that I think people just, they haven't really thought about it this way, but I want to throw it out there and propose that maybe the biggest person Georgia has returning from injury this week is JT Daniels. Everybody went crazy. And I think if Kirby could have one thing that he said this year back, it would be after the Arkansas game, the press conference the following Monday, so the Monday before the Auburn game. I think Kirby would have said, JT Daniels is cleared. So he's going to start working, but he's way behind the other guys. Instead, all he said was JT Daniels is cleared. And we knew that he had been practicing. We knew that he had been in non-contact jersey and all that kind of stuff. But he had had a knee brace on and all that, and his mobility was a problem. But I listened to Jim Donnan talk about this early in the week, and Donnan made it clear. As I said, yeah, he got cleared after the Arkansas game. But that doesn't mean that he was ready to play. Just because you're healthy enough to ready to play doesn't mean that you are performing at your best, that you're ready, that you're completely comfortable, that you have all the confidence that you need and you have all the reps that you need to be out there to be the starting quarterback in the SEC. Now, when Georgia fans heard J- JT Daniels is clear and it was kind of thrown out there by Kirby as just kind of, oh, yeah, by the way, this happened. When we continued to see later in the season, Bennett struggle, Mathis struggle, the offense in general struggle, everybody was clamoring for JT. And this week, as I've already alluded to in the podcast, if JT plays great on Saturday night, all you're going to hear late Saturday night and probably for most of you early on Sunday morning is how stupid Kirby is for not putting him in there. But the reality is... He wasn't healthy. He hasn't been healthy. This guy's coming off an injury he had to have a follow-up surgery for. Not to mention, he didn't have a spring practice to go through. He didn't have a normal summer to go through. He didn't have a normal fall to go through. Nobody is clamoring for Carson Beck. Carson Beck was a highly recruited four-star quarterback, in-state guy. You know, there's no reason that anybody should want to know 
or, or shouldn't be asking, well, where's Carson Beck in all this? Well, the reason is he's a freshman, a true freshman who didn't have a spring and didn't have a summer and didn't have a normal fall. And why would we think he's ready to play? Well, for a guy that's just coming into Todd Munkin's offense, that's just coming into the Georgia program, didn't get in here until July, and now all of a sudden, a couple months later, we're expecting him off of ACL and a follow-up surgery to be ready. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So a lot of guys returning from injury this week, and hopefully we can get these healthy guys back and hopefully we can keep everybody healthy. Because at this point, what I want to see the rest of the year is I want to see us building toward hopefully a win in a big bowl game against a quality opponent to really be a jumping off point for 2021. We need to see positives. We need some good juju in this program. There's been enough bad juju already. I'm going to finish this week on an extra point, and the extra point is this. When you turn your TV on on Saturday night, don't be surprised at all if you see the dogs run out on the field at Sanford Stadium with black jerseys on. Now, for folks that remember the Rick era, we turned wearing black jerseys into something that was all about juju and, and, and you know, um, extra energy that the team might need. Let's change the pants for this game because we need a little extra juice. and Let's change the helmets for this game because... You know, we, we need something extra. And let's let's start out with these weird uniforms against Boise State in the Chick-fil-A game in 2011. And because of that, the beginning of the Kirby Smart era here has been just riddled with a lot of questions about jerseys and about what we're going to wear and all this. Listen, we need to normalize wearing different jerseys. Now, I think 10, 11 times a year, Georgia should be in their traditional jerseys because Georgia has a great, great traditional jersey. It's iconic. It's just great. The silver britches, the red jersey, the helmet, the G, everything about Georgia jersey is awesome. But the reality of 2020 is these players want to wear different jerseys. And they don't want to wear it so they have a little bit of extra to play Alabama or LSU or any big game or rivalry or whatever. They just want to change it up. They just want to have fun. It's it's fun for them if you see any of the recruits when they used to come on campus and when they can come on campus again, every single recruit that comes on campus and takes a picture is wearing a black jersey. Why? Because they think it's cool, because it's different, because it's not the normal thing. We don't have to make it a really big deal if Georgia wears black on Saturday night. I personally think home night games, Georgia wears black, period. Why? Because it's cool. That's it. That's all you need. What if you're on? What, you know, if, if you're playing North Texas at 7:30 on ESPN, uh, or, or the SEC Network first week of the season, that night game we wear black. Period. I I don't see why we have to make this a big thing, but I do think it could just be fun, and that's what I'm asking for. I'm not I, I'm not saying they shouldn't be wearing the black jerseys. I'm saying that we shouldn't care so much that they do. It should just be fun. And we should normalize it and not for any other reason other than the players like it and what else matters. If it helps one player make a decision to come to Georgia that can help Georgia win football games, then that's more than enough reason to do it. So we get JT Daniels. We get black jerseys. We get a night game. We've got this beautiful fall weather. We get to bundle up on Saturday night and watch our dogs, the dogs, beat the Bizarro Bulldogs. I think this game is going to go well. I think this is going to be kind of a 31-13 to 13 kind of win from Georgia. I think Daniels will play well. I think he will play well enough to make everybody pissed at Kirby. But they won't. he won't play well enough to make everybody think he's the greatest thing in the world because we still need to be able, as Georgia fans apparently, we really need to hold on to as much negativity as we possibly can. So he needs to be okay. He needs to be better than Bennett. And he already is because he's not short. Um, and But we still need to have enough that we can be anxious and, and angsty about. So that's my prediction. 31 to 13. Dogs to get back on track and beat the Bizarro Bulldogs and uh, the Pirate on Saturday night. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great week. And as always, go dogs.